Hello and welcome to the Canvas podcast. My name is Stefan Mees and I'm here today with Frederik van Grotel. Frederik is a Belgian photographer that is best known for his vibrant work from Brazil. As passionate as a human can be, he invested the earnings from his freelance work into his annual 30-day photography trips to Brazil. Once there, his curiosity led him to all sides of Brazilian society, resulting in photographs that document the juxtaposing socio-economic extremities. Each year, Frederick gained a better understanding of the Brazilian culture. This enabled him to go more in-depth and capture a complete story. Eventually, in 2019, he launched his photo book, Dualidade, and ended up winning the public prize at that year's Brussels Street Photography Festival. With his photo of a homeless man on the boulevard of Copacabana, Rio de Janeiro. Frederick has done uh, expositions from his work in Brazil, in his city uh, Antwerp, the capital of Belgium, Brussels and New York. It is in the run-up to his exposition in New York, about one year and a half ago, that Frederick and I met each other. We have been in touch quite a few times since, uh, and I always enjoy his rather dry, silly and sarcastic humor that he brings to the table. Today we're talking in the framework of Frederick's participation in the Art for Sustainability project, a collaboration between the Canvas and Kunstgezind, where artists work around one of the 17 UN Sustainable Development Goals. Frederick is addressing SDG number 10, Reduced Inequalities. Well, Frederick, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. How are you doing? I'm, I'm doing fine, thank you. This is quite an interesting experience, talking to you completely in English, like listening to you talk about like the text that I've written as well and <laughs> that I, I I promise that I didn't write them uh, this way on purpose to make it uh, I wanted to make it sound sophisticated certainly in English but it was <laughs> I, I can I understand what you're saying yeah checks the position uh, and all of those good <laughs> words uh-huh. it took me a, f- a few times before I uh, had that sentence correctly but um yeah, man. How how are you holding up in these uh, in these strange times for all of us? It's a question that uh, we have to ask everybody we see. No, obviously, these days. obviously. Um, actually, I'm I'm doing I'm doing well. Uh, things couldn't be going better. I uh, in January actually switched back from full time photography to um, working in an online marketing agency again. Uh, putting photography back to part-time which at the time I didn't know was the best decision I could have made um, it pretty much you know I, I work from home every day uh, I have stability right now and I still can do photography projects from home but they're way more creative so it takes the financial pressure off creativity which is yeah it, it, honestly I, I didn't think the switch was going to uh, have such a big impact on on today's situation. So, yeah. In short, I'm I'm doing really well. How about okay. how about you? Well, I'm doing uh, doing fine myself. Yeah, it is. It is a strange time for everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think we right before the podcast, we also talked about the fact how it opens up um, time for yourself to look at different stuff in your life that you're uh, going through and um, engaging in um, mm-hmm. and sort of, I guess, relieving relieving the pressure uh, of the rat race mm-hmm. uh, on basically everything, you know. I think for me, one of the most things that stood out was, you know, before you were saying to yourself, I have to work out, I have to play sports uh, because I have to stay fit and, uh-huh. and everything. And right now you're sitting at home, you're like, 
oh man, I want to work out. <laughs> I want to play sports so uh-huh. so badly. So we just do it because we like it, and it sort of gives you a new appreciation mm-hmm. for many of the things you were already doing, but just for different reasons. It seems. Yeah. Um, you just you just mentioned that you get a lot of more creative freedom because of the pressure being taken away yeah. on the financial mm-hmm. side. Can you explain more about how that really affects you? Oh yeah, certainly. So before I was uh, working as a full-time freelance photographer, which was, you know, some months were really good, some were way more difficult. I was working like long days, late hours. Like it was, um, it was intense. And I felt that uh, having the pressure of earning enough money to break even every month was... Um, I don't know, it was limiting my creativity in, in many ways. So right now, I, I think like you just said, um, photography, just like working out, it it is a passion, but if you turn it into your profession every day and you get the pressure of like making a living with it, uh, it kind of dulls that passion in, in, in some way. And I think that right now in this uh, climate, I've gotten the chance to earn my my income with online marketing and actually like think of new projects to work on or just like even if they're just small projects i've i've had more mental space to um think about doing street photography projects or or something like that like before i switched uh jobs or before i was stuck at home uh 24/7 for 2 months um those ideas just wouldn't come to me so and i'm i'm really happy to have that creativity back yeah i guess if if the financial pressure is there you're always wondering is it worth putting in the time while mm-hmm. some of the best creations are not that obvious that they will be worth putting in the time and that they will bring you sort of yeah that, that success and appreciation that you get uh yourself and from your audience uh from your art um exactly and in in some way it also is to like it feels like you didn't earn time off yet until you know that you've you've made it for the month like you've that you reached the point of break even or like okay this was a profitable month profitable month now i can go ahead and 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 just do whatever i like be creative like it always felt like I had to reach that point, uh, both in in building my portfolio, uh, servicing my clients, and then, like you said, everything else, like working out. Um, I don't know. I cook every day, so it's like it's it's a lot of things to do to check off before you're like, all right, new projects being creative. Let's just sit and think for a while. Like, yeah. That was something that that I didn't come to during when when everything was just normal. When bringing back to uh, your your book, Dualidade, mm-hmm. uh, what was the situation like when you were? I know it's it spans multiple years. Yeah, before mm-hmm. you actually came to the book, but it was always during these trips uh, to Brazil. Um, were those trips where you really? sort of free from financial pressure or was there clearly clearly an objective there as well um, to support those trips? Mm, 
I think each year was different. So I've went for five consecutive years and about an average of 30 days per year. Um, and I th like the first time literally it just was a holiday and I went to a, a music festival, which was Tomorrowland Brazil. Um, Very familiar for our Belgian listeners. Exactly. And so, South American most likely. Well, yeah, it, it ceased to exist <laughs> for, for, it wasn't that profitable apparently, but um, yeah, I, I just went there. I graduated uh, college and I remember my friend that I did what my internship with, he said, hey, I have an extra ticket to Tomorrowland Brazil. Do you feel like joining? And I was like, hmm, let me think about that. Okay, yeah, I'm going. Like a Difficult choice to make. Exactly, exactly. It was more like a reward. And I would say that 2015 definitely was the most shallow trip mm. I did. It was just like the, the basic 22-year-old uh, going on a trip abroad, you know, music festival, going to the beach, like not like I, I had a camera with me, but I wasn't really that much into photography. Like I did it mainly as a hobby. And it was after that trip that I decided to actually go to photography school, which I only ended up going to for six months. But each okay. year. Why, why was that? No. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I think I went to photography school after getting my degree in marketing because I felt that I couldn't be a photographer without studying to be a photographer. So, but then as soon as I started studying to become a photographer, I felt like I already know this. Like I've watched many YouTube videos uh, and I've experimented on my own. And I, I always felt like, okay, so this lesson doesn't apply to me because I already know this. So let me help my classmates understand. Um, and it just never ended. And after six months, I got a job offer at a film production company in Antwerp, uh, just a small one starting up and to work on their marketing department. So I did. And then I remember being on one of their sets and after just one day of shooting, I've learned more than I did in six months of photography school. So I said, well, this doesn't add up. I'm being paid to be on the set and I'm learning more than the school that I'm paying to be at. So that was quite an easy decision to make. Um, and so coming back to your initial question about the if I had a goal in mind, I didn't have a goal photography wise up until 2019. So the last year I went, Okay. Yeah. um, I think that's what, what makes the story unique in some way, because I was discovering Brazil, uh, and like I'm saying Brazil, but it's more Rio de Janeiro and Sao Paulo. Um, and at the same time I was taking pictures. So the first ones that I took were really just on the street from a distance. I didn't speak any Portuguese. I didn't know a lot about the history or the culture from the country. And then I think um, like each year I would get more and more interested and I felt this urge to go back because I just wasn't done with the topic. And it's really difficult to explain what that was, mm -hmm. but it, you know, it, it kept, like I had to go back. So I stuck to you. Exactly. Sort of, yeah. I found a way to go back without really understanding why that was. 
And so I started, uh, because I was doing some model photography back in Belgium. And so I started, you know, just sending messages through Instagram. Like I missed my connection in uh, Amsterdam and I had um, 12 hours to kill. So I just started DMing models like one after the other through Google Translate. I didn't speak any Portuguese. So I was just, that was in 2016. So I was just messaging them. And eventually some of them said yes. And I think my second shoot was with um, Mr. and Miss Rio de Janeiro, 2016. Wow. So okay. that escalated quickly. <laughs> so, uh, and... And that was just through Instagram that you yeah, came... Yeah, yeah um, just DMing. And then I got in touch with a photographer in Rio. And, you know, we just had a good connection. Like his English was... Uh, I think he used to teach English. So his English was... Uh, like good enough to to communicate and he would like help uh help me out with the photo shoot and make sure because let's say organizing something in south america is like very different in the way that it goes mm -hmm. in like in europe like sometimes the idea of being on time is very different you know not on that particular shoot but there was a shoot where i waited two hours like i arrived on time and i was two hours early actually so that's like you need someone to translate both in the language and in the culture um and then and then how do you go because now you're uh, mm -hmm. doing shoots of models yeah um but as you said sort of the the topic from brazil the, the, the inequality that is shown there yeah. Yeah. um how do you make that jump so or how do you how do yeah. you switch from you know basically doing something with financial pressure and mm -hmm. going to um, models to do photo shoots mm -hmm. um, not to, to disrespect that kind of work but it's, a, it's a viewed as a more commercial yeah, sort of certainly. activity mm -hmm. than what you're doing while shooting um, the, the, the pictures of Dualidade yeah so the some of the model, model photos actually got into the book uh, because it is about inequality but it, it also is about the like the two stereotypes about Brazil, like either it's a tropical paradise or it's like a developing country with favelas that can be a hell. So depends on the way you look at it. Um, so I think that without knowing it, I was documenting one side of the story. So the easiest side was the, like the tropical paradise that was just there that I didn't need to understand anything about the culture for. So they sort of rolled into automatically exactly. coming there as a European. Like that's the thing that Brazil. attracts everyone. Like, oh, the amazing beaches. Like there are so many supermodels coming from Brazil and it's like yeah. when you just get a chance to shoot with them, it's like on a different level, um, even with the language barrier. And then um, like some of these models actually uh, had families that were in, in the movie business or whatnot. So I would get invited to after parties or birthday parties. And so that dragged me into one extreme. So the, the wealthier part of the, of the equation. What was that like? The, the, the crazy Brazilian well, let, let, wealthy part? Yeah, so um, maybe that's a good one to come back to because there was this revelation where i actually understood what i was photographing but before 
before I can talk about that, I have to give a bit of background information about the other side, I guess. Sure. So, um, like each year, I would go deeper and deeper into the other part because I started to understand and speak Portuguese. And then at a certain time, I remember my Airbnb, uh, like I only book it for four days max and then I want to move to a different part of the city. And it was ending and I was like, oh, there is a favela pretty close to here and I see they have Airbnbs. So let me just book an Airbnb in this favela, um, which I then told to my host who freaked out that I did that. <laughs> uh, and I remember going there because she freaked out that bad. I was like really scared actually from like, what did I do? Eventually I, I arrived there and I didn't feel like leaving the apartment. <laughs> Even though But in the favela, you mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. So I went to a favela without really understanding what that was all about. So I don't recommend this to anyone, by the way. Don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> so, but did like, did you take any like precautions up front? Did you? Um, I wish. I know. I, I, I have no clue how somebody like goes into the favela and like playing. with uber <laughs> okay <laughs> you take an uber and you put in the address and they freak out and then you're like oh this might not be the best idea uh but then once i was in like the people that were hosting the airbnb were like super no there's nothing going on um but i think the tolerance for what they're used to is very different from mine so i remember opening up my um my window in the morning and seeing like SWAT going patrolling the streets with assault rifles. And I was like, maybe this is more dangerous than I thought it is. Like it's the first thing I saw in the morning. So I started Googling right then and there, like what is a favela? What is the history of favelas? How did they actually, you know, came into existence and, that's when I actually understood the history and the potential risk because there is this famous story about a Brazilian reporter that went undercover into the favelas to document it. And the second time he did it, they uh, kidnapped him, uh, took him to the top of the mountain, tortured him and put him, like they lit him on fire alive to send a signal to don't do that. So that was a like good a thing that I found out before going into the streets with my camera. <laughs> so that was 2017, and that was my first time actually within a favela. So doing that research there sparked my interest to the next year actually work with children from favela. So that's the year I went to volunteer for two months, um, which would be the pivotal year in in dualidade in the in the story dualidade it, it depends it no wrong. no you're not saying it wrong you're saying okay. it with a different accent so okay. i have okay. an accent from uh rio de janeiro which is more with a g okay. and but but the way you say it could be correct as well just from a different region so don't worry okay. about that okay. i was like <laughs> i would have corrected you on yeah, that I was, I was like, did it did it just not point that out <laughs> I thought we were friends, man. <laughs> no, so, um, yeah, I I went to work there and 
once again, I didn't fully understand what I was signing up for. I just knew I wanted to understand it better. Um, and there was this one uh, moment that I really remember, which is uh, from your previous question. I In the morning, I, I finally, I think after one week of working with the kids, which were from uh, Morro dos Macacos, which is a, a favela near Vila Isabel in Rio de Janeiro, I... I, for the first time, actually found out they were being uh, neglected or often um, beaten at home. They were full of scars. And um, we were trying to teach them some English. And they, like, so I asked, like, the obvious question. So what do you have for breakfast generally? Like, talk about your daily habits. And then they were like, hmm, breakfast? And I was like, oh. <laughs> so, so that was, like, really... Um, I don't know, that was like a, a wake-up call in some way, like, oh, I I don't think I really understood the reality. And then, so I only taught in the morning, and then in the afternoon I had to go to this uh, birthday party. So I took a bus um, to arrive there to one of the models I shot with, like I did a shoot with the year before. And... Um, Like, I found out that one of the family members is, like, a movie director in Brazil and uh, the mom is an actress and whatnot. And, like, it was filled with Johnny Walker and just, like, uh, Sky Vodka, I think. Like, there were all these brands from the U.S. and they were drinking from the bottle. A lot of the people there were underage. And it was, like, that was 20 minutes in a bus. And I never... Like I've been to, for instance, I've been to China, I've been to Australia, I've been to Cuba, but I've never felt a culture shock as much as I did within one city because it only took me 20 minutes to get there. And it was like a completely different world. That's that's interesting because what you said before when you, know, you asked uh, the young kid about his breakfast mm -hmm. and that he was like, well, what, what breakfast? Yeah. yeah. My initial reaction was, be, oh, you look at the inequality that happens between someone from Europe and then in mm -hmm. Brazil, but then you go back to, yeah, or even uh, a lot further than what, do you, what you are used to here in oh, yeah. Europe in mm -hmm. 20 minutes exactly. without making, uh, how much is it flying to Rio? Is it 17? No, it's, oh. it's, not, it's not that much. Not that much? Um, I don't remember by heart, but it would be, I guess, eight hours. Oh, okay. Yeah. Direct flight. Yeah. Yeah. Well, from Amsterdam. You would fly from Amsterdam, so. Mm -hmm. So, but still, 20 minutes is, is a lot shorter. Yeah. So, yeah. it was, it was, um, it's like you said, it, it's, it was a kind of luxury that I wasn't used to over here. Um, and at the same time, it was a type of poverty that I've never seen before. Like, we did this class on geography and they we asked our group, the, the ages in our group ranged between five and 15, mm -hmm. which is like difficult to work with. Let me know, by the way, if we're, when we're close to hitting the mark. <laughs> I will. Cool. So their ages range, range between five and 15 and... We had this uh, globe 
and we asked them to point out where Brazil was on the map, and none of them could do it. Like, wow. that's being a 15-year-old living in a country which is one of the largest in the world and not being able to point it out on a map. Like, that was... Like, I don't think that I really understood um, how big the difference was. And then I'm I'm just comparing with, with Europe in general. Mm-hmm. Like, And I remember one of the kids asking, like, so what are the favelas in Europe like? And then I was like, oh... How how do I tell this? Like we we don't have that. <laughs> no, we have rough neighborhoods. Exactly. And there are definitely areas that are mm-hmm. that have um, a lot of problems. Mm-hmm. Um, where our inequality is sort of showing. Yeah. But not on the same uh, it's, level. It's not on the same magnitude. It's like um, I think because this is where if you dive deeper into the SDG ten. And inequality studies, it's oftenly based on the uh, the Gini index. Mm-hmm. Um, and there is this correlation between uh, violence and how uh, how unequal your society is. So that's another fact about Rio de Janeiro is like the amount of homicides that happen are like, it's crazy. It's spiraling like, just going out of this world it's i think equally they're equally uh, the amount of people being shot in rio de janeiro is about the same as in war zones but it's like in a city yeah i wouldn't consider it a real war zone yeah it's just day-to-day life over there so well i mean you would perhaps consider it but it's not officially it's yeah it's not officially a war zone it's not declared a civil war but that is exactly what's going on yeah Mm -hmm. and so you went to brazil um as you explained uh in 2016 for the first time yeah 15 was the first time and 16 ah, was was the first first time with the intent of taking photos i would say yeah Yeah. Yeah. exactly Mm -hmm. so you then have this three-year uh, process in which you're growing into the into the project i would say without mm-hmm. you knowing it exactly um and as you said you you stuck to this um uh, inequality that was happening that, that was what, what kept kept you interested in going I, I, back yeah i would say i noticed it in at the end of my trip in 2018 so i didn't understand what was drawing me towards brazil but it was in the end that I understood it was that. It was only in retros- retrospect that I understood what it was. And so at that point or uh, in retrospect, why do you think it was exactly that topic that caught your attention mm. as much as it did? Yeah, I asked myself that question as well. I, I think in some way it has to do with the way I grew up, which was sometimes in... Like, I remember with growing up with my mom, um, we were relatively poor for, I would say, two years. So, and I remember still being like, I'm, I'm an okay person. Like, I'm not any less because we are having financial issues. Eventually, um, 
my mom passed away and I went to live back with my dad. And so that was in some way going from one financial situation to another, which was way more stable. Okay. Um, and I, like, I'm not sure about this, but I would say subconsciously that could be one of the reasons that I felt drawn to it because I felt like I, I can play along and I can belong in both groups without actually having to pick a side. So you were just saying um, that after the death of your uh, mother, mm -hmm. that you went to live with your uh, father and that, that sort of put you in a position where you're very familiar with both sides coming from a more um, a low income situation where you went to the, into a high income situation. Mm -hmm. um, and that gives you, that's interesting that that's, I don't know how many people go through that um, transfer in their, in their lives. Yeah, neither do I, but I, I, how did it sort of change for you personally in like a day-to-day -day basis? Oh, it was crazy. Like those times for sure were very difficult in general. Um, and I, I remember for instance, like I was being bullied at school for, I, I don't know, I was 14, 13, 14. And I was still wearing clothes that you're supposed to wear in I'm not sure how you call this in the US, but is it primary school? Like okay, I, I was yeah. I was in high school and I was wearing clothes that I shouldn't be wearing anymore. But um so I was being bullied for that. And I remember asking my mom at the time, like, can I please just get something something else so I they'll leave me alone? But there you know, there there wasn't enough money to, to buy anything new. So um and then after my mom passed away, I, I remember being with my dad and still feeling really bad when I would go to H&M and buy a t-shirt for, I don't know, five or 10 years. I felt like I splurged, you know, I felt like it was, um, yeah. And it was alien, alien to you to do something it, like that. It felt like, I don't know. I even felt guilty in some way, like, whoa, why did I deserve this? Like, this is, this is crazy. Why, uh, let me not buy it. Like stuff like that. Like it was a, it was a mental struggle often that I thought that it still wasn't possible. Um, so when I, when I returned to living with my dad, um, it's not like things were, were, crazy like we're i'm still from a family that's believes in hard work and not um spending money well mm -hmm. like not not excessively spending money yeah. i would say that so to be honest there wasn't not too much change i felt like i had grown up pretty fast because of the reality that i grew up in um and all of a sudden i was part of a group of people that I I don't know. I didn't have any business being at before. Um, like when I lived with my mom, I started hanging out with like small local drug dealers and stuff like that. Just doing stuff that was not um, 
that I wasn't supposed to do or being around people that I wasn't supposed to be around. And then I, I don't know, I moved back in with my dad and then I, you know, I got, you know, it it got me out of that group of people and put back into the, the nice and well-educated Belgians, you know, and, and it, it's a completely different social context. And I don't know if I ever like, obviously I am like that, but at the same time, there's a part of me still that's not fully like adapted to the new situation. Yeah, exactly. That that's not part of the the regular life. I would say like there's still something in me that goes looking for stuff that's not within the ordinary. Yeah. Well, it's you know it's up until your mother passed away when you were fourteen. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Fourteen years old. So mm-hmm. those first fourteen years of your life obviously have like a, such a huge impact for me that's i i mean that's such a long period that it won't ever leave you um well i that this might be yeah the way i told this story like i only lived with my mom for two to two and a half years okay so it was when my parents decided to divorce while having a business and my mom uh being in her last phase of having breast cancer that it that it actually that things started to change like i everything before that i i cannot i cannot complain about that the only thing is when something like that happens i would say it it feels like everything you knew before was a lie in some way like it wasn't true so like a lot of like there was a like a fight within the family there was this um business that my parents were running together my family was working within the business so everything split up like my family started to have a huge fight and no one was talking to each other people hated each other so it was in some way growing up in within uh you know, like it was kind of like a war zone in some way, like where people tried to use you to, to like in some way, when people get divorced, the children are both like a trophy, like, oh, they're with me now. So I'm on the right side. I've won the children. So they're the trophy, but they're also someone to send to your previous partner to, to spit, hate on them so you're kind of being brainwashed in some way so when i was only living with my mom i only heard from her perspective like my dad and then when she passed away and i was forced to live with my dad again i for the first time heard his story about the events and everything was way more balanced that it than it actually seemed at first and yeah, I so you have that entire period going on where you have to rebalance exactly all of the stories you've and been told. And there's like in each conflict, there's a there are two parts to each conflict. I would say like that's what I'm trying to say. And the same, it's the same with Brazil. Like if you if you are on the rooftop pool party drinking booze from the bottle, you're just like, hey, um, this is your reality, and you're being scared for being kidnapped. Um, but at the same time, I can walk 
and later on I did it more responsibly, but I can walk into favelas and talk to people and understand their reality. And then it's only when you see both parts that you can find the true reality in some way. Like both of them have their stories, which are very emotional. And it sometimes it's very difficult to see the other's point of view, but because you're neutral and you can get into both worlds, you start to understand the bigger picture. Yeah. That's a, that's a very interesting connection to make there. Mm-hmm. Going from your personal uh, situation when, we, when you were younger and, and having both worlds there and then having the war zone and then mm-hmm. maybe, that's, maybe that's exactly what caught your attention yeah and made it made it stick uh in brazil it it could be like i i think so but then again you know it seems like it's always looking back on stuff that you're trying to figure out what what actually made you do something or what was the the common thread in your life and then you're just like could have been this it sounds reasonable but yeah <laughs> i i don't know for sure to be honest so but it 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 seems to make sense yeah yeah so to come back to the story i told i told earlier um when i realized on that rooftop pool party that there were two parts to that story as well just as Uh, there were two parts to the divorce of my parents. I felt like I was in a perfect position to examine the viewpoints of both those sides. Um, And so I started for the first time really printing out my work in 2018 when I came back from volunteering. Um, And I don't know, I started um, doing some small exhibitions in the local coffee bar and inviting people and there wasn't that much of a story yet but it was like there was something there but i didn't have enough material material yet and so eventually i remember uh someone asking me if i wanted to uh join them in a group exhibition in new york and i was like whoa that's that doesn't sound too bad so who was that Huh? Who was that? Oh, that was uh, Kunstgesind. Uh, do you do you know them by chance? Um, familiar, familiar, I'm familiar with them. Oh, yes. look at that! <laughs> so yeah, uh, for everybody listening, that's uh, that's when we uh, met. Exactly. Uh, so because of that opportunity, I actually had to, you know, I kind of had to polish my story in some way and. I remember there being so many visitors at during the exhibition itself, uh, which was at the Canvas in in New York. Yes, that was at the first store that at that point was only open for I believe uh, three to four months. Was it only open for that little time? Okay. I believe so. Yes. Oh, that is interesting. Hmm. Well, so I remember people actually asking about those photos and what the stories were. And each time I had to tell the story 
I got more efficient at telling the story, but also I started to realize what my story was lacking because I could talk about it, but but I couldn't show everything. And that bothered me. So as soon as I came back, um, I started planning on actually going back to Brazil for uh, like, I wouldn't say the final time because I, I haven't been back since, but I, I might want to go back. Uh, so, but I wanted to go back to actually complete the story in photographs. So I remember telling all my clients, like I'm not going to be available from uh, mid-June to mid-July and I'm just going for a month once again. But this time it was with the clear goal to finish the project that would become Dualidade or Dualidade. Um, and at that point, I really relied heavily on NGOs to, to help me enter into the, the Brazilian communities, which is another word for favelas, um, in a way more responsible manner. So... Um, what was that uh, process like? Um, I mean, because we heard so many people like going with NGOs into different parts of the world. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I just traveled to to Rio de Janeiro, which for me was visually the most, like the differences are so visible there. So I w was certain that I wanted to complete the project there. Um, and I would just have this goal in mind, like I need this, I need, like, I need this kind of shot. I need that, I need that, I need that. And so, for instance, Rocinha, which is the largest favela in Brazil, was on my bucket list ever since the first time I saw it. Like, I was getting goosebumps, goosebumps seeing it for the first time. It was like a wall of lights. Like, it was huge. And I was like, I have to go there. I have to go there. So my entry ticket uh, was through the local Capoeira school, which is an NGO in itself. So it helps the children stay off the street, stay out yeah. of the gangs, uh, teach them a discipline, teach them a sport. Um, and so I would just send them yet again a DM through Instagram like, hey, would you guys be interested in photos of your activities if you can use them? And I just want to, like I, I also wanted photos from Capoeira because it's such a, such a typically cultural thing in Brazil. Um, and of course you get talking and at that point after teaching for two months the year before my Portuguese had improved quite a lot so I can finally um, have conversations with people and I rem like you, you invest each time like a day or two days photographing for them helping them winning their trust and eventually you can you can be like hey I actually wanted to enter into the favela and you know don't go to the parts where the tourist guides go with some gringos that pay off the, the gangs to leave them alone. I was like, yeah. I want to go to the places where usually the the gringos don't go. And so they, like a couple of guys took me along and I'm, for instance, Cap Capoeiristas are really respected still in, in these communities. So I remember... Um, seeing the gang members there, like, uh, I think like 15 year olds with Kalashnikovs on their back. And 
sadly enough, like it's the it's the picture that I still see before I go to sleep because I asked my guide, can like can I take a picture? And he was like, definitely not, definitely not. We're gonna get killed if you do that. So let's not do that. That was the that was the shot you wanted. Yeah, yeah. that's that's the that's the only thing you like I think as a photographer that's the that's the thing that keeps you awake. Like the things you saw that you you couldn't photograph. Um but still I got plenty of other opportunities to to show the reality in more subtle ways, maybe. Um and so yeah, it was only in 2019 that I took the photos. I I was on the streets every day doing street photography. I um annoyed people to ask to take their portraits to actually complete all of the parts that I needed to tell the story, the visual story that I had experienced before. Um, and I still remember going to Sao Paulo and seeing an, <clears throat> seeing an Instagram ad for a photography competition. And I, I sent in some pictures and I was like, didn't think much about it. It was the first time I entered into a photography competition. Um, So shortly after I went back to Belgium and I started working on the book, Dualidaji, uh, and I received an email being like, hey, um, you were selected as the last, I think, 15 finalists for the um, singles in Brussels Street Photography Festival. I was like, oh, that's nice. Like for my first competition, that's like 100% of the competitions I entered, I'm a finalist, That that's good. <laughs> um And so I kept on working on the book and after a while they're like, hey, uh, your photo is going to be part of the exhibition. Like, it would be nice if you would come. And I'm like, okay. And then I went there. And eventually, um, one of the photos I took won by public vote. So it wasn't the judge's decision, but it was the, like democratically speaking, the most liked photo by photography lovers, which... In some way, I like that award better uh, because it it means that it reached more people, that it uh, moved more people. Yeah, I think that's I think that's fair. Um, so yeah, eventually, after winning that, like that helped a lot with legitimizing the the story I was telling because it it was a visualization of the the contrast that I was trying to photograph um which you all you also talked about briefly in the introduction right the um like this is purely audio right so we cannot like on that version we can show the picture but we cannot show it yes okay well <laughs> <laughs> anyway, add pictures later. Yeah, exactly. Just put it in the description or something. <laughs> Now I have to cut out another part of this. Yes, I'm sorry. <laughs> um, so getting back to it, so, um, so winning that uh, competition uh, legitimized my project in some way, and then eventually, when the book came out, there was some, like, there was plenty of interest uh, locally, and now. Um, It is amazing to be able to um, to supply the book through the, the network of the canvas and to make it available internationally, which is something um, that I'm really proud of. And I'm really thankful for the canvas for helping me with that. Yeah. 
Yeah, we're absolutely thrilled to have you uh, on board as well because I think what you did there um, resonates so much um, to many of the things that we are doing. Um, you know, we have several brands that are working with communities that you went to mm -hmm. sort of um, bring to the, yeah, or, or photograph and um, to sort of bring to the light here um, in the Western world. So it's always great to see people um, coming from their own backgrounds um, and, and going into these places that are so um, different from what we're used to. Um, and bringing them to our sort of world and change our perspective. Um, and that's what we try to do with fashion brands, mm -hmm. um, but also with artists such as yourself. So, um, yeah, absolutely happy to, ha um, to have you with, it, with us. And um, I, think, I think we've come to a point where I wanted to get with this uh, podcast. Mm -hmm. um, I want to thank you for being on the podcast um, to being so open about your own situation about everything that you did um, I have to say it is an absolutely amazing book um, I would say everybody who is listening uh, to go to um, well first of all your Instagram which is Frederick with CK and then VG so Frederick VG okay um, perfect and then I would say head over to uh, www.thecanvas.nyc. -E um, go into our sh store and look at Dualidade by Frederick van Grotel um, and buy it for yourself to see the story that he put together um, after hearing his entire life story. Uh, Frederick, thank you so much for being here. Like, thank you for listening to me and thank you for the opportunity. And who knows, maybe let's do this again one time. <laughs>